morning, good morning. Moms, happy Mother's Day. We do love you and appreciate you, uh, especially when you serve us and love us in ways that Jesus does, sacrificially. So thank you, moms. We can't say that enough, uh, and I'm sure we don't say it enough, but we hope this day is a special one for you. Before we dive in and uh, look to God to teach us, let's do what we always do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our moms. They are one of the many, many blessings that you give us. We are thankful, God, to have moms that love us and care for us. And they remind us of your love, Jesus, your love, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit. Their love is not perfect like yours, but nevertheless, it is constant, consistent. And it reminds us that we are made in your image and loved, uh, even when we don't merit that love. So Father, would you be our teacher now as we turn our, our thoughts and our attentions to our study? Let us hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we go. I'd like to start by asking you a question. What were the most exciting five minutes of your life? Obviously, up to this point. Look back on your years as far back as you can. What were the most breathtaking, exhilarating, heart-pounding 300 seconds you ever experienced? I've actually got a few candidates for this when I consider my life. Probably for me, jumping out of an airplane not so long ago uh, was one of those moments. That lead up to that time of leaping out of the plane, man, the heart was pounding, the palms were sweaty. Uh, another one I remember was shortly after Holly and I got married, I took her on a canoe trip. Uh, what I didn't know was that there was a waterfall ahead. And yes, we were in our canoe and we rode over the waterfall. And that was quite heart pounding, almost ended the marriage, but it, somehow it didn't. Uh, another one, being the first person one time in Canada on a lake where we discovered a cliff that we could jump off of. It was 40 feet, something like that, maybe 50, not sure. But as far as we knew, nobody had ever jumped off this cliff before. Well, yours truly got to be the first one to jump. And so, you know, not sure about what's in the water, exactly how deep it is, etc. Heart was pounding, palms sweaty, the whole deal. And then, of course, another one was just having children, especially that first child. Man, was that hard on me. You know, palms sweating, heart pounding. Uh, I felt like I was having to do all the work. No, that's ridiculous, of course. But I'm telling you the truth. That was an exciting moment, seeing Holly give birth to our first son. Uh, again, what happens in those moments? Well, your, your heart is racing. Uh, your palms, your forehead gets sweaty, uh, full of anticipation, full of excitement, full of adrenaline. Uh, but as exciting as any of those kinds of moments are, I believe that those all combined literally amount to nothing compared to what is to come. I think the most amazing five minutes that we'll ever experience will be the first five minutes of our lives right after we die. Think about it. Century after century, the brightest minds that have ever lived have devoted their lives to trying to penetrate what lies beyond that veil, the veil of death. And five minutes after we die, we will know. We will experience whatever it is that lies beyond this world, 
and is in the next. We will have the first taste of our destiny for all of eternity. And those five minutes are coming. They're coming, friend. They are inevitable. It's an amazing thing to think about. Think about the sights you'll see. Think about the sounds you're going to hear. Think about the smells that you will experience in that first five minutes after you die. We're in a series studying the book of Revelation and it contains the many visions of the apostle John. Uh, John says in chapter 14 that for every human being that walks the face of this planet, those five minutes are coming and they will indicate an eternal destiny either of indescribable joy or unspeakable loss. And John talks about the coming hour of judgment when God's judgment on each person will be pronounced with utter finality. We'll talk more about judgment in a few weeks when we get to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation because there it talks about the great white throne judgment. But this morning, I wanna look at what John says here in chapter 14 about the state of blessedness and the state of condemnation that some will experience. And when we'll talk uh, when, at the end a little bit more about how we should respond to what John says. So first, the state of blessedness. John writes these words. He says, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Blessed are the dead, John says. Friends, that one statement turns death entirely on its head. In our world, we tend to think of those who die as being the most unfortunate, right? You never hear anyone describe the dead as the lucky ones or the fortunate ones or the ones who are actually most blessed. But John does. He says those who have died in the Lord are blessed. Those who follow Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, those who honor Jesus in this life, but have died. The word to describe them, John says, is blessed. Why? Well, because now, according to John, now they really fully live. And in the first five verses of chapter 14, we get a little picture, a little image of what this blessed state looks like. John writes these words. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is a picture. The lamb, of course, is Jesus. Mount Zion is the place where Jesus dwells. Uh, a frequently mentioned uh, location in the Old Testament, that place where God is with his people, that place where God dwells. And this is a picture actually of the whole church, Old Testament church, 12 tribes of Israel, New Testament church, the 12 apostles. Uh, this, this number, 144,000, we've looked at before. It's 12 times 12, which equals 144 times a thousand, a number of wholeness, a number of completion. And what it's a picture of very simply is all the people of God, Old Testament people, New Testament people combined the people of God. This uh, is all in contrast to what came last week, uh, chapter 13 and verse 16, where we are told that all people, both small and great, 
both rich and poor, both free and slave, are marked on their right hand or their forehead with the name or the mark of the beast. But here, the name is that of the Lamb. Here, the name is that of the Heavenly Father. This mark, it marks the 144,000. It's the church victorious. And this mark is a signification of ownership. Uh, It's a sign and a seal of who you follow. This mark is the same seal put upon the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. And it identifies and it protects. Uh, John goes on to say, And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. So the church is singing. Uh, It's gathered. Uh, And they're not singing just any old song. They're singing a brand new song. And it's loud, like the roar of rushing waters. Uh, like riding a canoe over a a waterfall. (laughs) Uh, It's loud like peals of thunder, Uh, but it is also something very beautiful. It's both, you see. It's like harpists playing their harps, John says, and everybody is singing. Not like in a service where some have their hands in their pockets and their lips sealed. No, this is everybody singing. This is everybody belting it out. No, no, No non-participants whatsoever. This is full-throated praise and worship. The church is worshiping because it fully realizes now its state of blessedness. And uh, it's a new song. New songs in the Old Testament were always sung in celebration and thanksgiving for God's deliverance of his people from their enemies. That's the routine. Deliverance, new song. And we're told that no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So only God's true people know this song and sing this song. Only those saved in Jesus, only those redeemed at the cross, only those given Jesus righteousness. That's what John means when he says, these are those who do not defile themselves with women for they remained virgins. Uh, This is more uh, a a symbolic description, again, of the church. This is not to be taken literally. Uh, It's meant to be in contrast to what just came before back in chapter 13, where the whole world, we're told, commits idolatry and adultery with the dragon, with the beast. This uh, is not the church. This is not the bride of Christ. They have not committed idolatry or adultery with the beast. The church remains faithful to Jesus, even faithful unto death. And the way it's described here is in this metaphor of marriage. They remained virgins or they remained pure. They remained clean, sexually undefiled. Now, just a pastoral word here. In the early centuries of the church and even in some places today, like the Roman Catholic Church, Words like these have been interpreted to mean that the purest form of living for God is chastity or complete sexual abstinence. And sometimes words like these have been interpreted to mean that sexual experience, even in the context of marriage, is somehow less holy, less good than chastity. But that is not, I would submit, that is not the meaning of this text The point is not that God is against or down on sex. 
Sex, after all, was God's idea. God created this thing called sex. What's going on here uh, in this passage, uh, we often find also in the Old Testament, which is this, this thing of spiritual unfaithfulness to God is being referred to in a metaphor uh, such as adultery. Or it's the idea of breaking a marriage covenant, being unfaithful to promises, unfaithful uh, in the relationship. God is married to his people. They are his. He is theirs. The the prophet Isaiah is a perfect example of this. Uh, Hosea chapter 4 talks about God's people who are committing adultery. They are not being faithful in the relationship. It says a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. And again, we see this in many places in the Old Testament. Using adultery, using prostitution, using these things as a metaphor to describe spiritual unfaithfulness. It's the same metaphor that John is being given in this vision in Revelation 14. The angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. There's the metaphor. This immorality or this adultery, it's not sexual. It's actually spiritual. So when John in verse four describes the church as these are those who did not defile themselves with women for they were virgins, he's talking about their faithfulness to God, their spiritual fidelity to God and God alone. This is a picture of the church redeemed. This is a picture of the church forgiven, a picture of the church faithful, a picture of the church in perfect righteousness. It's a blessed church. It's a church victorious, Uh, a church now incapable of being unfaithful to God because they are there with God face to face. This is a church whose hands now naturally do acts of service and love. This is a church whose mouths naturally now speak words of truth and words of beauty. Always, always. John describes the church this way. He says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Here in this life, you know, we try to follow the lamb, follow Jesus. And sometimes we get that right. And sometimes we just don't. But then in that day in heaven, the church will follow the lamb wherever he goes. It says also they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. First fruit offerings in the Old Testament were acknowledgments of God's ownership. They were acknowledgments of his provision. At harvest time, you gave God offerings of your finest and your first newborn livestock. Your finest and your first grapes or grains or produce of any kind. It was a way of giving thanks and acknowledging God's ownership and provision for you. And that's what is pictured here. It goes on to say that no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless, it says. In other words, this 144,000, this true church, uh, they are different from others described in this book, the book of Revelation. For example, back in chapter three, verse nine, there were some people there who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, it says. Well, In contrast to that group who said they were Jews, but were not. In contrast, it says no lie is found in their mouth. They are blameless. This is the true church being described. This is God's people. They are faithful. They are truthful. They are sinless. They are blameless. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the true church 
in heaven with the heavenly father, with the lamb, with the Holy Spirit. It's redeemed, it's perfected, it's forgiven, it's glorified. It's a sinless, blameless, blessed church. What a glorious day that's gonna be (laughs) because that's hard to even relate to because although the church is glorious today, it's also not, right? Something that occurs to me that I wish I did not have is how much sin in me I wrestle with day to day to day. How many things run through my mind that I just wish were not there? Things like worry, things like fear, things like greed or things like selfishness, things like anxiety, The apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi one time and he said, do not be anxious about anything. Whoa, okay, that's hard to do. Would you agree? What with viruses and economic downturns, job loss, quarantines, 401ks, tanking, people dying, it's hard not to be anxious about anything. It's hard not to judge people who don't wear masks. It's hard not to judge people who do. If you are working at home or out of work because your job is labeled non-essential while others with essential jobs, you know, like selling pot or reporting the news or doing politics, uh, they're doing business as usual. It's hard not to be a little resentful, maybe a little judgmental. Here's my point. All of us struggle with wrong kinds of thoughts of one sort or another. And uh, we'll just just having difficulty uh, as we interact with those in our family, those at work, those at school, those in other places where we traffic with people. It's a difficult thing not to become frustrated with them, not to have those kinds of thoughts. But imagine, imagine in contrast what it would be like to have no more of those thoughts, no judgmental thoughts. No bitter thoughts, no worrisome thoughts, no greedy or selfish kinds of thoughts, no more lustful thoughts. They just, they just don't come to mind anymore. You see, that's the church here in Revelation chapter 14. It says, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The older I get in the Lord, the more weary I become of my own sin, my own broken stuff. Imagine dying and going to be with Jesus. Those will be the first five minutes I've ever spent where I'm not battling my own sin. Those first five minutes with Jesus. My thoughts and my actions will be good and they will be kind and they will be pure and they will be peaceful and they will be righteous and they will be uplifting and they will be loving, always. I'll have no thoughts of anxiety, resentment, frustration, temptation. I'll be blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, John says. Amen. I'm telling you, it will be the greatest five minutes of any Jesus follower's life. Guaranteed, guaranteed. And then the next five minutes will be even better. And the five minutes after that, even better. And that will go on and on and on for all the rest of eternity. And I would dearly love to just kind of close this message 
right here and pray. I would love to be able to say that's the fate of this sorry world and everyone in it. But it's not. Uh, That's not John's whole vision here. John says that for some, the first five minutes will usher them into another reality altogether. And this is where in our text this morning, things get very sobering. It starts in verse eight. The vision of this other reality, it's a vision of the state of condemnation. And it can be summarized in a single phrase. God is not there. This is what we read. It says, another angel, a second angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on their forehead or on their hand, on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. This is sobering imagery here. It's not something I even like talking about, really. But not to talk about it is not to tell the whole truth. Many people in our day are troubled by the thought of God being angry or God being wrathful or God punishing anyone, sinners or anybody. Many people, some outside the church and even some in it, reject any ideas about God other than that he is loving. And of course, that is true. John the apostle, the same one who wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote the words that God is love. It's just that that's not all God is. God is also good. God is also righteous. God is also just. God is also fair. And because of this, God gets angry. The Bible has some quite serious things to say about the anger of God. You know, when we, when we see anger expressed by people or when we express anger ourselves, it's almost always junked up by sin, the sin in us. I remember when our children were very little and dealing with their temper tantrums, kicking, screaming, refusing to obey. And we would look at this and think, what in the world is going on here? What is that about? Where does that come from? But if I'm being honest, I can also remember too many times where I let my anger get the best of me. And I would have to go back to my kids or back to Holly and apologize to them for what I said or what I did how I said it, how I did it. I did it in anger. And my anger wasn't really honoring in any way to Jesus. You see, fallen human beings rarely get anger right. But God does. God's anger and wrath, they're never petty. They're never, it's it's never partial. God's anger is never vindictive. It's never cruel. God's anger is never out of control. It's never unpredictable. He does what he says he's going to do. It's never a temper tantrum. He doesn't kick chairs or punch walls or throw things or say things that he later regrets. And we need to be careful not to junk up God by projecting all kinds of human fallen tendencies on him. 
Now, the Bible does teach, of course, that God is a person, Jesus. He's a person. He's got real thoughts. He's got real feelings. And these include anger. But God's anger is pure and it's holy and it's just. And that's actually good. It's actually very good. Uh, In fact, I don't think that I would want to follow a God uh, who could look at something like a Holocaust, for example, and not get angry. Would you? Um, I don't uh, don't think I would want a God who could look at slavery or genocide, uh, racial hatred, child abuse, abuse of any kind, discrimination, murder of babies, and not get angry. No, these things do make God angry. And quite frankly, quite apart from what I want or what I don't want, the Bible says God does get angry. He gets angry at sin. And um, his anger is a measure of the seriousness with which he takes the problem of sin in us and in the world. And to the degree that you discount or deny God's anger, you do so, friends, to your own peril. It's like the ostrich putting its head in the ground. I don't want to see, I don't want to know anything about that part of who God is. That he gets angry, angry at sin. Now, John describes this state of condemnation here in our chapter. In verse 10, he says, the person who worships the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur. That's fire and brimstone. In verse 11, he says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, again, sobering stuff. John is still using physical imagery to describe spiritual realities. Tormented with fire and sulfur, tormented forever and ever. This is imagery that is used many times in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you what it is. It's imagery of a vanquished, conquered, devastated city. Um, In Isaiah uh, chapter 34 is just one example of how language like this is used to talk about the judgment of God. This happens to be with relationship to Edom, uh, the country of Edom. You recall that these are the descendants of Esau and there was always tension between the Israelites and the Edomites. And um, in Isaiah 34, this is what we read. It says the streams of Edom, the streams that are absolutely essential for survival, right? Because there was, was an arid dry land. It says the streams of Edom will be filled with burning pitch and the ground will be covered with fire and sulfur. And this judgment on Edom will never end. The smoke of its burning will rise forever. The land will lie deserted from generation to generation. No one will live there any more. It's an image of a conquered city, a conquered civilization, and it's being uh, burned up. And from a distance, you can see the smoke of the wreckage of that city, that civilization rising into the sky. And as you watch that, you, you have to think, you have to realize once there were homes there, Once there were schools and shops there. Once there were children playing there and people falling in love there and neighbors caring for one another there, but no longer. Now all of that is gone. 
And the idea here is the utter loss of community and connection. It's all been destroyed. It's all been judged. Understand, God's dream for the human race is deep relationship and community and connection, first and foremost with him, but also with each other. That's God's dream for the human race. And this image here is the opposite of that dream that God has for you and for me. It's the loss of all community. And I mention this because sometimes I've heard people kind of say jokingly, you know, hell won't be that bad. My buddies will be there. It'll be a good old time. And they talk about it and joke about it like it's going to be, you know, time spent in a bowling alley uh, drinking a bunch of Miller Lite or something of that nature. Friends, that is not the picture John gives us. In fact, all the things that make camaraderie or community or connection, the Bible calls it fellowship, all the things that make that possible, things like self-sacrifice, things like uh, loving someone or servanthood or kindness or honesty, all of those things are gifts to us from God. And to reject God is to reject everything that makes community possible. Just as heaven uh, later in this book is described with all kinds of physical imagery to convey spiritual truth. Things like, for example, uh, streets of gold will be in heaven and pearly gates will be in heaven. All of those things are images to reflect perfect community. Those are just images to reflect reflect perfect oneness, perfect beauty, beauty, perfect symmetry, perfect shalom and harmony. Well, Hell is the mirror opposite of that. Hell is the image of a destroyed community. It's a burned out, desolate city. That's hell. No friendship, no love, no community, no camaraderie. And I don't know if you noticed, John said, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, no God, no fellowship, no community. All of that equals no rest, no shalom. Friends, our souls long for shalom. Our souls, our spirits long for rest because so much of what we experience is so tiring. The sin in us, the sin in the world, the brokenness in the world, the spiritual battles that we're always having to fight, losing too many of them, frustrated, worrying or thinking about the future. All of that stuff causes in us a longing for shalom, for rest. Imagine an existence without rest. That's hell. That's like being a mother of a toddler forever, right? No end in sight. It's way worse than that. It, you see, rest is renewal. Rest is refreshment. Rest is reward. Imagine no rest from a guilty conscience. Imagine no rest from isolation. Imagine no rest from a purposeless existence. Imagine no rest from the misery of sin. No rest from resentment, no rest from hatred, no rest day or night. And again, this is the opposite of the state of blessedness, which we looked at a moment ago. Blessedness is a place of rest from struggle, 
Rest from sin and misery and injustice. Rest from heartache. Rest from loneliness. Rest from weariness. The state of condemnation is the opposite. And unfortunately, it's real. And it will be permanent. And it's going to happen to real people. People who don't rest in Jesus. People who don't trust in Jesus. People who don't follow him. And I want to just ask you, imagine what it would be like to wake up to the first five minutes of that. Knowing that you'll spend the rest of eternity drinking the cup of God's wrath. Those are the two fates, friends, that await the entire human race. And that is why God has an angel in our text proclaiming the good news. In Revelation 14, verse 6, this is what we read. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, good news, to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. That's the eternal gospel right there, friends. That's the good news. That's what God has us always proclaiming. That's what his word is always proclaiming. And the truth is, friends, the only way to get into hell is to spurn the love of the Father, to not listen to this eternal gospel, the message about Jesus, his life. His death on the cross, paying for sin. His resurrection, coming back to life. And yet many people do spurn this message, spurn this love of God. The last part of this chapter, verses 14 to 20, is all about two different harvests. One harvest is a good harvest. It's the harvest of God's people. It's a good crop, so to speak. The other is the harvest of all of those who have spurned the love of God and who oppose the work of God. It's a harvest of grapes is the way it's described. And honestly, it's an awful harvest. Grapes are put into a wine press. And if you know anything about making wine, and I know very little, but I know what a wine press is. Pressure is applied. Grapes are crushed and the juice is squeezed out of the grapes. And we are told that the juice here because this is a harvest of people opposing God, is the blood of these people being pressed out of them. They're being crushed. And it causes the blood to rise as high as a horse's bridle, it says. It's another warning. You you see, are you getting the message that through the book of Revelation, there's warning after warning after warning after warning to people on earth to get ready? Because the day is coming when judgment will arrive. The idea of these harvests is that people are going to reap what they sow. Human beings are surprised about this, but God is utterly just and utterly fair, friends. And yet for all of us who have made so many mistakes and and sinned so often, uh, there, there is this one eternal gospel that we look to, hold on to, and believe in. This one great piece of news that has been proclaimed to every nation, it says, every tribe, every language, and every people. 
And that gospel says that for all the wrong things that we have done, there is mercy. For all the wrong things that we have done, there is forgiveness and there is grace available from Jesus. And I hope and I pray that everybody listening has appropriated this grace into your life. You do that by faith, by putting your faith, putting your trust in Jesus, asking him to forgive you of your sin, telling him you want to follow him, telling him he will be your God and he will be your leader. And boy, if you haven't done that, you need to. Doesn't matter how old, how young you are, that is what you need to do. And if you have done that, wow, we have a lot to rejoice over in this text. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. But there are other implications too. Implications for the people around us, friends that we have that don't know Jesus, workers that we have that don't know Jesus, school chums that we have that don't know Jesus, people in the neighborhood that don't know Jesus. What are the first five minutes after death going to look like for them? This is a whole added implication. And the question is, do we ever live in the soberness of that reality? The people around us, What are they thinking? What are they believing? You know, folks, this is why Jesus said to his disciples when he was ascending into heaven or about to, he said, go therefore and make disciples, people who follow me of all nations, baptizing them in the name. This is like that forehead thing, right? It's what baptism sort of signifies, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. (laughs) This is why we do what we do. I mean, this this is the heart of it, right? This is why we plant churches. This is why we preach messages. That we want people to come to faith and grow in that faith to Jesus. And this is why we pray. We pray for wisdom to know what to say. We pray for humility to know how to say it when the opportunity is there. We pray for divine opportunity. God, help us to know when to speak up and when to be bold and when to shut up. Give us that kind of wisdom because we want people, people we know and we work with and we live around and we love. We want them to wake up after dying to the right five minutes don't we? I mean, that is why we exist. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, these these words are on the one hand, extremely encouraging, encouraging to those of us who have faith and trust in Jesus. They remind us of his mercy and his grace and his, his provision for us. But on the other hand, these are sobering words because there are so many people spurning the love of God, spurning the love of Jesus. And Father, help us to care that they don't know him. Give us wisdom and and boldness and the words we need and the actions that would accompany those words to convey your love, Jesus, to these folks. We pray for men and women and children everywhere to hear the gospel and to respond to it as good news. 
We also know, God, that you get angry. You get angry at the sin in us. You get angry at the sin in the world. You get angry at what the ramifications of all that sin are. And we're glad you get angry at this. We're glad for the solution that you provide in Jesus. Thank you for this time to reflect together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.